in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. When we were just a church plant, I remember Pastor Jordan talking a lot about what it would take to give a sermon, kind of like the amount of hours he put in. I feel like he had a number for the amount of times he wanted to preach in a year, say maybe like 45 times out of a year. And he said he'd be able to pull in other pastors from other churches to help out. And he said that it'd be nice to bring in people from the church to come up and speak. And that's something that I thought sounded kind of neat. It's been on the back of my mind. But the issue is that, you know, for Jordan, coming up with a sermon, being interesting, having engaging content every week is a lot of work. And I found for me, well, it's taken almost four and a half years to come up with something to talk about. So it's a tough job. And then also, basically for giving Jordan a weekend off this weekend, well, he's not even here anyways, so that didn't work out well either. But to actually get to the passage here, we're going to be reading from Isaiah, mainly sticking in the book of Isaiah. And, um, excuse me, I need a drink of water here. And to give you some context of what's going on, the Israelites have been in rough shape. Uh, The kingdom of Israel has been attacked by its neighbors. They have had a series of poor leaders, poor kings, that have kind of led them downhill. And eventually it gets to a point where these Babylonians come in, they take over the Israelites, they destroy Jerusalem, and many people are captured and taken to Babylon. So this is the Babylonian captivity. So these people now, they don't have a home, and they're under threat of losing who they are as a people. But Isaiah has a hopeful message for them. God is going to free these people eventually. He talks about restoration. People are going to be restored. They will return to Jerusalem to rebuild. And he also talks about the restoration of everything, a new heaven and a new earth. And the verse I'm talking about today has to deal with that restoration. Uh, Not with everything, but it's just God calling the people to him. God is comforting the people. So the verse today is Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. So right away, this verse, it sounds like a very hopeful verse. It's a good verse. It's kind of one your grandmother would cross-stitch and hang up on the bathroom wall. Maybe my grandmother did, but I couldn't tell because her stuff was in Swedish. But to me, there's something a little bit weird going on with this verse, something kind of abnormal, because there's plenty of verses in the Bible talking about God giving to us. God is going to provide for you. He will feed you. He will lead you. He will protect you. But there's something a little bit different going on here in that there's this statement, you who have no money, come by and eat. So for me, I ask the question, why does it say buy? Why does it say buy without money? Why doesn't it say you without money, come to me? That sounded a little weird. Why doesn't it say, come to me and take from me freely? So that's kind of my question going into today. And to start this off, um, if you look at, you know, maybe a study Bible or look up a sermon on this passage, it will say something like, you know, this is the great invitation. Everyone's being invited to come to God. Everyone is invited 
to be fulfilled by God. And often what they say, if they do touch on this statement to buy without money, they'll say, yeah, that is a strange statement. And it works out because Jesus has made a sacrifice. He has paid the price for us. And now for me, that is a true statement. That's a good statement, but it's a little bit lacking. I feel like we should look at this from the perspective of the Israelites at the time, of the perspective of the people who are in captivity in Babylon, or the people who have been leading up to this captivity, the downfall of Israel. And I think if we put a little more context in this verse, it'll have a bit more punch to it. So the first thing I want to look at are two verses that are leading up to this upcoming freedom. And conveniently, they have kind of a similar thing going on with this idea of money that should be exchanged, but it's not actually happening. So the first verse here is in Isaiah 45, verse 13. This is talking about Cyrus. So right now the people are in Babylon. They're held captive. But this Cyrus, the king of the Persians, he's going to come in, take over. And this is what God says Cyrus will do. Isaiah 45, 13. I'll raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I'll make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. So in this case, I don't know what this would mean to someone in captivity when there's going to be basically new leadership coming in, new management coming in. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? But as it turns out, it's an unexpected thing. What we would expect is, you know, maybe someone's going to buy off the Israelites. Maybe the Israelites will have to rise up and revolt to get their freedom back. But no, God doesn't do that. Instead, God raises this King Cyrus in such a way that Cyrus is going to free the people for nothing. We'd expect there's some kind of payment, but that doesn't happen. And I find that interesting. In a similar verse, now we're talking about High Piper. Got to go back. <laughs> in a similar verse, in Isaiah 52, verses 2 through 5, God is addressing the people directly. He's addressing the Israelites directly, getting them ready. The, this freedom is coming up soon, this freedom from the Babylonian captivity. And it says, Shake off your dust, rise up, sit in throne Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, daughter Zion, now captive. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. At first my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately Assyria has oppressed them. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord? For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. So in this case, God is getting the people ready, saying, shake off their dust. They're going to free themselves from the chains. But they also have a reminder of the Egyptians and the Assyrians. Now, I didn't really spend much time looking at what the Assyrians have done, and we don't have time for that anyways. But for the Egyptians, that's a story that we are familiar with, the Exodus, where the Israelites lived in Egypt for a time, and they didn't have any problems. They lived with the Egyptians in harmony until eventually the Egyptians turned on them. They enslaved the people. Essentially, as the statement is made here, you were sold for nothing. But in this case, God comes back. He doesn't leave his people there. Here. He says, I have redeemed you for nothing. And that word redeemed has kind of a legalistic sense to it. It is in a sense of buying property back that you have lost at a debt. God is buying these people back. They are his people 
but he's not making a payment for it. He is simply doing it because it is his right. It is the just thing to do. And I like that word redeemed. It shows up, I believe, 13 times in this section of Isaiah. Not in the total of Isaiah, but just verses 40 through 60 or something like that. It's like God is saying, you people, you have been taken for nothing, and I'm going to buy you back, but I'm going to do it in my own way. And I feel like these two verses, where we have this expectation where it feels like something should be paid, maybe a fight should happen, something like that happening, God does it a different way, and it points out the nature of God, and that God is somewhat otherworldly. God doesn't do things the way that we would do it. God doesn't bribe people. God doesn't pay off people. God doesn't simply raise up another army to help clean up house and get the Israelites back. God doesn't raise up the Israelites to fight again. So God does things in ways that we wouldn't expect. And I feel like these verses are kind of pointing that out, saying, you have been taken for nothing. I will redeem you for nothing. And then God tells his people, come to me and you can buy for nothing. So that said, I actually want to stick with the Egyptian verse for a little bit longer. Because as an Israelite, was in captivity, your everyday person, they're going to know about the story of Exodus. They're going to know their ancestors were freed from Egypt. But they're also going to know that they're also going to know that their ancestors weren't very happy about being freed from Egypt. They ran into a lot of issues. In fact, immediately after escaping from Pharaoh's chariots through the Red Sea, they say, at least in Egypt, we may have been slaves, but at least we had food. And now they're stuck out here in this wilderness, fighting to survive, trying to find food and water, being attacked by people they don't know. So as an Israelite who's in captivity, waiting to get freed, the question is, I see the statement that we're going to go back to Jerusalem, but are we going to face the same issues? Are we going to struggle to find food and water? Are we going to get attacked by somebody on the way over there? Are we going to make it in a timely fashion? The previous people who left Egypt, they weren't the people who made it to their final destination. They were gone for so long, that generation had died out. So as someone who's waiting for this freedom, there's a lot of questions. What is going to happen? Yes, the people will make it, but what about me? And that's what I like about today's passage. Even though these passages here, they're kind of directed to the people at large, today's passage says, those who thirst and those who have no money. It's addressed to the individual. It's showing that, it is showing that God's promises, they're for the people and for the person. And yes, it's not necessarily saying that, hey, if you're a captive and you're going on this trip, it's not saying that you will make it, but it is saying that God is still mindful of you. God understands you, and God will be with you. And I feel like that is an important bit of news to hear in such an uncertain future when we're going to be leaving and going back and rebuilding Jerusalem. So with all that said, we've talked a little bit about kind of the issues that the Israelites were facing with their neighbors kind of externally. But we're going to switch and talk about what the Israelites are facing internally now, these verses aren't necessarily dealing with the captivity, but this is, these are issues that they are facing um, leading down to their downfall. 
And specifically, we're going to be talking about merchants, people of the marketplace, and what they've been doing to your everyday people. So the first passage here is in Amos 8. We're going to go through the minor prophets here. And Amos 8, 4 through 6. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales. Buying the poor with silver and a needy for a pair of sandals. Selling even the sweepings with the wheat. So right away, in this case with Amos, we have these merchants. They're trying to sell things, but they have a complaint. They say they're waiting for this new moon to be over. They're waiting for the Sabbath to end. I believe the new moon has to do with a festival where they're not supposed to sell. And it's saying that these merchants, they aren't paying attention to God's law. They want to, they want to get past that. But they have ways of making up money. So they have false measurements. They have dishonest scales. At this point in time, the Israelites did not use coins. They just weighed things out with silver or other types of metals. So these scales are tampered with in such a way to favor whoever is the owner of the scales. These people are getting more money and they're cheating out everyone else. And along with that, these people at the end here, it says these merchants are selling even the sweepings with the wheat. So they're kind of mixing in filler in what they're selling. So not only are you getting a bad price for a product, you are getting a bad product. Just a little aside about Amos, I kind of like him because other prophets, they're either a priest or a son of a prophet. It's kind of their job. Amos was actually a shepherd, and he became a prophet later on. So he feels like kind of just an everyday guy. And when he has a complaint, it feels a little more relatable to us, at least. I want to talk about Micah here. And Micah, you're going to hear something similar, but there's a little bit added into here. So Micah, uh, starting with Micah 6, verse 10. Am I to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I quit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Now I'm going to jump ahead to Micah 7. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The rulers demand gifts. The judges accept bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. So again, we have something similar going on here. We have a reference to dishonest scales, and we also have the short ephah. That's a type of drive measure. So these merchants have figured out ways to cheat out the people of what is rightfully theirs when they're buying and selling. But on top of this, there's an extra little bit here towards the end here saying, the judges accept bribes. So I feel like these issues are probably well-known issues amongst the everyday people. They know that they're being cheated out. But the issue is that they can't do anything about it. Many of us have probably spent time reading Mosaic Law, and yes, it's boring, it's dry, it's long, but it's there for a reason. It's there to address situations like this. But if you run into this situation, if you find out you're being cheated, what can you do about it? If you bring it up to a judge, who is the judge going to side with? It's going to be the person who has the money. And for everyone else, they're stuck. They can't do anything. 
So with these two passages, we see people being cheated out, people being mistreated by their own kind. And when I think about today's passage, when it says, those of you without money, come by and eat, part of it feels like this passage here, or these examples here, are related to this statement. That when we say, come by and eat, actually gets fairly compensated. It feels like this is the situation that's being addressed, at least somewhat. I know these verses are addressing everyone at large, but I feel like this would be a comfort to the original readers of this passage, the original hearers, because they're tired. They have been cheated, they labor, they don't get paid fairly. And now we have God saying, you don't need money for this. You can come to me. These people who have nothing to offer, it's okay, because God is saying, you who have nothing, take that nothing and put it on my scales instead, and you'll find that it's sufficient. You are sufficient. And I feel like that is a promise that would be worth holding on to. So with all that said, I just wanted to say a little bit about why I kind of got stuck on this passage. Uh, I feel like maybe six months ago, I read through all of the prophets. And throughout all the prophets, you know, we hear statements saying like, you should take care of the poor. And for me, yes, that's a good statement, but if you don't have anything to back it up, it's just a statement. But reading through all the prophets, time and time again, God addresses situations like this, where people are being treated unfairly, and God is showing time and time again, he has a heart for how we deal with each other. He has a heart for making things right, and he has a heart to say, this is not the way things are supposed to be. Come to me, and I will show you the proper way. So with that, I know I had mentioned in the beginning, kind of with commentaries, they say, um, Jesus had paid the price. That's why we can buy something without money. And hopefully, looking at these verses, putting things more into context, we fill out kind of the situations that the people were dealing with. We see what God has a heart for. We see what God is trying to repair here. So when we see, it says, those who thirst, those who desire more, we know we are invited because Jesus has paid the price. When it says, those without money, those who have nothing to show for it, we know we are invited because Jesus has paid the price. When it says, you who have been laboring, who haven't been treated fairly, who feel like you're working towards nothing, you are still invited because Jesus has paid the price. All you have to do is come and listen. You have to listen to this God who is somewhat otherworldly. He's not bound by how we do things as people. We listen to this God who is mindful of you. He understands you and your struggles. And we listen to this God who is restoring everything and making all things new. So with that, with why I'm stuck on this verse is, to me, it's been compelling to do something more. Seeing how God has a heart for his people, has a heart for how we treat people, it feels like I could be doing something better in my life with how I help people. And as Christians, we have an idea of what this means. When we read a statement, you know, come to God, come and buy things without price, we have an idea of what that means, we have a taste of what that means, we have a hope for that. 
And I feel like I need to reflect that in my actions to other people. I need to reflect that to people outside of the church. How do I give in such a way that it is free for the receiver? How do I give in such a way that I am not expecting payment or reward? And I wonder, what do we do as a church for that as well? I think internally, I think we do a really good job. I'm not saying we don't do things outside of the church, but I feel like that's something that's just been on my mind. What can we do as a church to reflect statements like this, to show people that we also have a heart for how we treat each other? We have a heart for fixing things. I want to be able to show people that we can reflect the Word of God in our actions. So, in closing, I want to read this verse one more time but I'm going to use a different translation. Uh, This is one done by a professor named Robert Alter. He basically, without getting into it, he made his own translation of the Old Testament, but he wanted to put basically the drama back into the English language. I feel like he does a good job here. But as I read this, I want us to have one foot in the Christian camp that says, yes, we recognize this passage here. It's ultimately pointing towards Jesus. It's ultimately saying Jesus has paid the price for us. And I want us to have another foot in the Old Testament camp that looks at the issues that these people have faced to see what is God working on fixing. And I feel like that gives the passage a little more power behind it. Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. O everyone who thirsts, go to the water. And who has no silver, buy food and eat. Go and buy food without silver and at no cost, wine and milk. Why should you weigh out silver for what is not bread, and your substance for what does not sate? Listen well to me, and eat goodly things, and you shall enjoy lavish fare. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.